Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't over leverage and try and plan for the worst when you're underwriting. And this was even a lesson learned on our most recent ones that we then went into deals that we walked away from. We walked away from a $36 million deal in the middle of last year because of where the interest rates were going with the Fed and because we weren't going to give in and just try and fit a square peg in a round hole. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Justin Brennan. Justin is joining us from San Diego, California. He is the CEO and co-founder of Brennan Poley Group. They are a multifamily syndicator that focuses on the Burr method with class B and C properties. Justin's portfolio consists of approximately 500 units in four states, California, Nevada, Texas, and Missouri. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? Doing well, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Justin, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, born and raised in San Diego. We have offices now outside of Austin, Texas, and then obviously San Diego, California. Kind of grew up in the development industry and construction industry a bit with my dad. Pretty self-made, taught me the ropes all the way through it. I grew up digging ditches on his job sites for most of my youth, and he made sure we knew the value of a hard work and the value of a dollar and all of that stuff. And then came through the financial crisis, right? I'm a product of the financial crisis, <laughs> so everybody remembers that and how challenging it was. I watched my dad go through quite a bit, and he had a massive, massive bankruptcy, and he was doing a lot of development stuff, new construction for sale product, and got caught. Taught me a lot, really, as to what different asset classes I wanted to be in, and whether that was going to be build and sell product, right, which you can make a lot of money with, but also it can get hammered and get caught in a real estate cycle, which he did. Or pivot into more of the cash flowing type assets, which, you know, the returns aren't as sexy on paper. They're pretty healthy, but there's also a little bit more consistency and planning and it's cash flow driven and property driven and all of that versus banking on huge speculation. And that's kind of what I learned from. What's the typical size of multifamily that you invest in? Today, it's going to have to be north of 90 units. 
simply because of economies of scale of having an on-site leasing center and on-site maintenance specific to that property. But we started with a $100,000 condo in Murrieta, California in the midst of the financial crisis. So it started with 100000 bucks in one condo. And then now it's scaled because we went from one to a duplex, triplex type stuff, learned through that, then got into five to 10 unit properties, learned through that, then started to do out-of-state stuff in 25 to 30 under 50 unit properties out of state. And then that's kind of what the light bulb went off for me to realize, oh, the economies of scale in this business of multifamily is really 90 plus units, maybe a hundred plus units is where the economies of scale really start to kick in. And you realize that after managing out of state, 35 to 50 unit properties, where it's probably just killing you, right? Yeah. All the out of state stuff, we have third party managed. But what you realize in doing that, it's the same process, just more zeros. (laughs) And what I also learned too, is it's easier to raise money for the bigger deals than it is the smaller ones. I literally got this from, we were raising money for a deal and I needed 2 million bucks, decent amount of money. But I had a group that said, well, Justin, it's a great deal. But if you came to us and asked us for five to 7 million, we'd give you that, but we can't give you a million to two. And I said, So let me get this straight. So if I come to you and ask you for more money, you'll give it to me, but I'm asking you for less money and you can't or won't. And they said, well, yeah, because the economy is a scale and blah, 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 blah. And they kind of went through it. And I was like, okay. And then we started getting into the bigger stuff, which makes sense. And then you can now have economies of on-site management, on-site leasing the property kind of is self-contained and managed and operated financially with that one property. So it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Let's explain that a little bit to maybe some of our newer best ever listeners. Now, it took me years to learn all of this as well. A $5 million project is easier to manage than a $500,000 asset, right? And I would I, agree I, with that. Yeah, I never understood that until literally yesterday. I'm at my $500,000 office building dealing with a water heater and a lockout. My $5 million strip mall. I don't know the last time I've been on site there, but now the raising capital part, why is it that somebody would rather invest five, 10 million versus a hundred thousand, fifty thousand dollars There's more meat on the bone, as they say, there's more pie available, as they say, when you start getting into returns and percentage returns and dollar figures for fees and things like that, your bigger equity groups and high net worth individuals, they like to see more zeros on the deals, even though the returns literally may be similar. You're saying, okay, 15% on a $500,000 deal or 15 to 18% on a $10 million deal, but there's more zeros in that $10 million deal. So that's why they linger towards that because the economies start to grow. Yeah. And often when somebody has a lot of capital to deploy, investing $100,000 is really just an accounting headache for them. It's just—it's an entry. A good lesson for our best ever listeners, find out how often your investors want returns. There's different profiles out there. Some investors, they want and rely on passive income. So they want that monthly check or quarterly check. Other investors, I would rather just give me the money at the end. I don't want to have to deposit a check and have to explain to my accountant and have an entry for all this stuff, right? So figure out what your investors want. That's important. So yeah, man, some great lessons you're sharing right off the bat. 
of this interview with our audience. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You have different types of investors with different goals. Yeah. And I'll share a quick failure. I was at a retirement party for a doctor and he said, Ash, you from time to time might need investor capital. I said, sure, let's talk more. And he said, at the time I was investing passively with Joe Fairless. And he said, I'd love to invest alongside of you. And I said, what are you looking for in terms of returns? And he said, six or 7% would be great. And I'm like, look, we don't even touch a deal unless it's 16, 17, 18%. And he said, no, that's too good to be true. Never again returned any of my phone calls. He literally thought I was a scam artist, right? And that's what we were making on passive multifamily deals back in the day. But had I been a little bit more savvy, I would have said, sure. And I would have found investments that I could have paid him as 7% and it would have been a massive win-win. Sure. So failure. And you can bring him into a different portion of the equity stack and de-risk the deal even further for that investor because it's all about risk-adjusted returns. And I think this is very important for your listeners and everybody to understand when you're looking at any type of investment, let alone real estate investment, the return should mimic the risk you're taking. So if I'm going to go do a new construction, new development, or a flip on a house or something like that, where the risk is much greater to take on that, because there's a lot of variables that can go wrong, that return better be pretty healthy, like 20, 30, 40% type stuff, because there's huge risk associated with it. But when you get into multifamily, where you're buying an asset that in most cases is taking care of itself most of the time, your risk is now drastically reduced. And all you're doing is improving that asset and coming in value add or operations and stuff like that. So because of that, the risk in return align, and that's where you get into the low teens or upper teens on your returns. Justin, you still do class B and C properties, right? Correct. Now, it seems like a lot of syndicators started out with class C, C minus and they've graduated. Now they no longer touch that asset class because they're strictly class A and B. The cash flow is still in the class C properties. Am I correct? Yes. I would say we're graduating more into B class, solid B assets, meaning 1980 or more vintage. And let me explain why. And I was taught this some years ago by a very wise older person. They said, you want to be Walmart surrounded by Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale's, and Nordstrom. But you want to be Walmart, surrounded by them. You want to be the B, surrounded by the A's. Because no matter what, COVID, no COVID, recession, no recession, up, down, left, and right, people always shop at Walmart and they always shop at Target. Rich people shop there, poor people shop there. Everybody shops there, no matter what, good market, bad market. The B's will always be full. Because what you're starting to see now with the A-class assets is because you've had a lot of new construction that's now been pent up and now being built in certain markets, what's happening? The supply is kicking up on the A-class assets. So now you're having oversupply in some markets. So what do those people have to do? Give more concessions, reduce the rent. You have higher vacancy rates on your A-class assets. Most of the Bs, if you're operating them correctly, are doing quite well because you're a great value add offset to your A-class high rent, high this, high that type properties. These C's I love, you just have to be very tactful with them because it may look great on paper when you're doing your underwriting and your numbers and all that, but what you need to also really account for is the capital expenditures. The CapEx, as we call it, the cap improvements, because you may get into that asset 
and you're like, oh yeah, look, the cash on cash on paper looks great. The IRR looks great. Oh, but then you had one big capital improvement issue, right? And you spent thousands of dollars fixing that because it's an older asset. And now all that cash flow that you'd projected, bye-bye. So what you'll see is that class B is literally the best. Your Target or Walmart, depending on where you want to play. I'd say Target's kind of your B plus. Walmart's kind of your BB minus. Anywhere in there is beautiful. In my I, would ima- I would imagine with your development background, you can use that to your advantage. Give us an example of how that's helped you in a deal. Yeah, so I'm a licensed general contractor. I'm also a licensed real estate broker. And what we bring to the table with our group is when they say vertically integrated, a lot of people say that, but are they truly? We construction manage all of our deals. So we'll have the PM, the property management company, manage the operations on site. But when it comes to the renovations and moving that property from A to Z through the renovation process and the value add, we're running that all in-house because we know how to do it. We have all the systems, the software, the operations, the knowledge, and we can have crews on site and running the whole show end to end and be so much more efficient. Whereas some other folks, because that background may not be there, they're putting that weight on the PM company. And I can guarantee you there is no PM company that I have yet to meet that has the operational know-how to correctly manage a value-add asset going through renovation. It is a assembly line, well-oiled machine that you have got to manage very, very, very tight, or you get into massive backlog and stacking effects of vacancy of units when you're going through reno. I can get into that more if you want me to explain it, but that's very, very, very key. Let's touch on that. And you're right. Vertically integrated has definitely been a buzzword lately. How do you remotely manage construction projects? Not you, because you're a GC, but somebody that's not as experienced. What advice would you give them? Any market we go into, we're always setting up the infrastructure in that market six to eight months in advance. So before we ever went into Texas, before we ever went into Missouri, before we ever went into Nevada, Arizona, Oklahoma, Tennessee, I'm going out to that market six to eight months before we are ever looking at a deal. And I'm driving the neighborhoods, knowing the markets, meeting all the PM companies, interviewing them, meeting the construction crews and the reno crews, all the logistics, the operations, everything you can possibly fathom. And it is set, ready to rock and roll before we're ever taking on an asset. And we do that on purpose because I don't want to catch tail and chase ourselves when now we have deals in the market. And we always use two or three crews on site. So that way, if one starts to suck, I got two more backup. I have two or three supply chain companies. If it's not HD Supply, it's Chadwell. If it's not Chadwell, it's AZ Parts. So I have three different supply chains. And then what else do we do? We have software. So we use a software called HappyCo and another one called Smartsheets. And that allows us everybody to collaborate in real time on these apps on your phone with all the subcontractors, all the suppliers, everything going on. So that way everybody can track everything in real time and where that unit's at in the rental process. And then our leasing staff, the PM companies can all chime into that as well. So everybody's in, okay, unit 303 is going to be done on Wednesday. Boom, 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 boom. Unit 202 is here. All that kind of stuff's locked and loaded. Damn, that sounds like a lot of work. That's what it means to be vertically integrated, huh? <laughs> not, not just throw <laughs> it up I on mean, the website. You, <laughs> if you want to turn a property quick, fast, and efficient, yeah. Because I, I just kept getting frustrated because you would hire other people to do it. 
and they talk a big game and they say, oh yeah, we got this and we can manage this and we have this. I'm like, okay, great. Show me. And then they do it. And I'm like, guys, I can run circles around you. I can do everything you're doing every day of the week and twice on Sundays and I'll run backwards before you can even run forwards. And then they see us do it and they're like, oh crap. So that's where I got frustrated. So we started doing it all in controlling it, even though we were out of state, we're still doing it better than them. Do you ever have one of your people on site? Yes. Obviously, because you have your PM companies on site, and this is kind of really important, you have eyeballs on the things that are overseeing them. And then each group of reno people, they all have their foremen. And I'm pretty involved. So in the first 12 months of any turn on a property takeover, when we buy it, those first 12 months, I'm probably on site every 10 to 14 days. That would make me feel good as an investor. Speaking of which, I'm assuming you guys take on investors. You bet we do. We've had everything from your accredited investor, your mom and pop retail investor that's doing $25,000, dollars $100,000 investments, all the way up to private equity groups who are writing two, three, five million dollar checks. So it really depends on what we're doing. What do returns look like currently and how are you finding new deals? Great question. Thank you, Federal Reserve, for doing what you did last year. <laughs> Holy cow. They put enormous pressure. It's still ongoing and we're all watching it with some of the bank failures and stuff. That's all a product of the massive increase in rates, which then have changed the treasury markets, the treasury bills, bonds, all that stuff, and put enormous pressure on any value-add deals that have been purchased the last few years under variable rate financing. We have a deal right now. We purchased in December 2021. We had variable rate financing on it that then goes fixed once we refi but we're still in the reno stage. And you can only imagine what's happening when rates go from (laughs) 4% to 9%. It puts enormous pressure on deals. So yeah, it's a big problem right now. How are you finding new deals? You have to make relationships with brokers on the ground. So when I said we go into markets six to eight months in advance, half of that is spent belly to belly with the brokers, getting on the ground, getting to know them, meet with them, tour a couple properties, If you don't get to meet with the head commercial broker, you're meeting with their little assistant person, it doesn't really matter. And you're starting to build that rapport. So that way now I'm getting a chance to see first look on deals where they're approaching me saying, hey, I have this one, I have this one, I have this one in the marketplace. So we get to look at them. They call it first look before it goes live on the market. And then we have also brought on an acquisition group, their fee-based acquisition group where they do the work and then they get paid a fee to source off-market deals direct to sellers. There's still your on-market stuff that everybody sees in your email inbox that comes across from the commercial brokers. But yeah, you definitely want to try and source off-market and you're going to do that through those relationships that you're going to build over time with the commercial brokers on the ground, number one. Number two, there are acquisition groups, fee-based, that they'll source off-market and then upon that acquisition, you pay them a fee. But typically the brokers are not involved in that because it's direct to seller. So you're paying the broker fee, essentially, but you're offsetting it with price. Typically, you're offsetting it with less fees in it because there's no brokers. So it typically gets offset. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you... 
A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. What markets are you looking at now? We are in Texas. We love San Antonio and north of San Antonio before you get to Austin. We are in Arizona, Tucson. We are in Nevada, in Las Vegas. We are in San Diego, in California only. It's the only sane place left in California. (laughs) We love the Tennessee market, Nashville, Knoxville. We love Oklahoma City. We are in Kansas City, Missouri, which is a top 10 market now. Interesting. What is the top three metrics you'll look for when picking a market? First and foremost is jobs, 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 because that's the driver. Jobs drives the population. So job growth, population growth. Who are the employers? How diverse is the economy? Where's the, what we call path of progress? Is the city have redevelopment planned? And where's that at? Where are they putting money into the marketplace? And you can typically go on to a city's development website and search for what are they planning ahead? What are they looking to do in the future? Where's the path of progress? Where's redevelopment happening? Where are they putting money in? Because that's typically going to also lead to where are the job creators? Where's the major employers? Because that then brings population. So it's jobs, population, and then we get into path of progress, rent growth, and dynamics. We want to invest in the top 75 MSAs in the country. I learned that primarily because if you want to get the best financing from the lenders, Most lenders, if you think about this, these big, big lenders, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, some of the commercial lenders, they've spent millions and have analysts and little teams and little minions all over the place that have analyzed markets all over the country. So they've done a lot of this dirty work for you. So when you talk to these lenders and you go through this, they're going to tell you, hey, you can look in that market, but you want to stick to these top 75 MSAs and here's why. Because we'll give you the best terms, the best interest rates. You're not going to have as many backup fees and problems, blah, blah, blah. And you'll get the best leverage on the deal and so forth because you're in the top MSAs because of jobs and population growth. And then just dynamics because what you'll find happen if you go out into what they call tertiary markets, these suburban markets out in the middle of nowhere a little bit, the pro forma may look good on paper initially, but what happens in any times like we talked about recessions and change in cycles People tend to then collaborate and move towards the population growth centers. Why? Because of jobs. When you hit recessions, everybody's flocking for jobs. Where are the jobs? They tend to be in the top MSA markets. So then therefore, you see this movement into those markets during recessionary periods. You always see it everywhere during expansion periods. But we always look for the oh shit moment. Excuse my language. You may have to beat that out. <laughs> so a lot of what you're saying, best ever listeners, don't take it as cliche. It's really valuable advice. What you mentioned about jobs years ago, I literally thought everything I touched turns gold. So I bought a bunch of properties in a town that was ravaged by job losses and drugs and crime. And my dumbass thought I could turn this thing around. It was a hard lesson learned, right? Did you learn all these lessons the hard way 
what were some tough lessons that you learned along the way? You've got the knowledge now, but most of us don't learn very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Look, a vast majority have been dealt with some failures. So you learn them that way, which is why I also recommend, despite what you hear from some people out there, go big, do a hundred unit deal or 50 unit deal, your first deal. And I'm like, okay, well, in theory, that's true. In reality, you're setting yourself up for an implosion because you can make a mistake on a little 10 unit property and probably survive and catch yourself. You make a mistake on a $20 million, 10 million, or on a big deal like that, it's going to be your first and your last. So that's why we did what we did. And you learn the lessons through those and you fail, but we were able to catch ourselves because the deals were small enough to where it was a $20,000 mistake, not $2 million mistake. Yeah. See where I'm going with it? Yeah. I just spoke to a young lady, first syndication, $20 million purchase, $10 million raise, very first real estate purchase. And 50% LTV raised $10 million is giving investors a 4% pref and 80, 20 split. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? That's amazing. (laughs) Meaning for her (laughs) that she could do the 4% pref. Is it a class A asset? You don't know the details. It was a quick conversation. Yeah. That's incredible. First of all, did she have any partners in the deal that were more sophisticated? She had to have. She has two partners that are both relatively inexperienced. I'm sure they've got some mentors in the background. How many units was this? I don't know. This was a- $20 million deal. Yeah, this was an introduction with a quick friend of mine. So it was 30 second conversation. He got most of the details on this. Yeah, I'm just surprised that they even got the deal to begin with because typically for you to execute on a deal, I don't know how many units, right? But that size of deal, your broker and your seller is gonna wanna make sure, hey, They're going to check you out. How many deals have you done? What have you done? Have you closed on deals? Do you have any references from lenders? Do you have references from other people? So you can go into it naive and inexperienced like she may be. But in my experience, you can do that only if you have partners who are willing to allow you to ride the coattails into it and you're bringing access to capital because you don't have the experience yet. So then you have to have the money. One of the two, you either have the knowledge or you have the money or you have both. But if she doesn't have the knowledge, she has access to capital. Then the partner she tees up with is going to have the knowledge and the experience and the track record to be able to execute on a deal like that. Because otherwise you're going to learn a lot of stuff and it could be very expensive. (laughs) So the point in this is that there's a lot of new syndicators that are raising massive amounts of money and may not have the experience, they're following a playbook. Maybe they paid somebody to sign on the loan. They they paid for their courses, their education, and they're undertaking these massive deals. What are your thoughts on that? I wouldn't invest with them. (laughs) If I were an investor, you got to do your homework. You may not have the experience and that's okay, but you have access to the money, blah, blah, blah. But your partner's better and they better have gone through it And more importantly, I would never invest with anyone who has not gone through a market cycle. People that have been riding this thing up for 13 years and haven't experienced a financial crisis or any kind of cycle that knows how to problem solve and troubleshoot and go through some serious, you know what, it's not their first rodeo in it. That's who you want to because they're not going to run away. 
when things get tough and things start imploding all over the place, you're going to see people that haven't been through that. They're going to start tucking tail and running all over the place. Your little syndicator is going to be like, bye-bye. And they're going to run off and not be there to support your money and support your asset where you put your heart and money as an investor. So the people that have been through it and have ridden through the tough times, they're not going anywhere. I also would never invest with anybody that doesn't put their own money in the deal. We invest right alongside all of our investors, a minimum of five to 10% of the total equity. So if it's $10 million in equity, we're putting a million bucks in. And we're vested right alongside the investors. We're signing on the loans. We're running the deal. We're managing it day to day. And we're not going anywhere. If things get rough, we're not walking. So that's key. Yeah. And you're putting money literally out of your bank account, not money raised into the deal. Oh, yeah. Meaning take out any acquisition fees and fees you may get and all that other sexy stuff, physical cash outside of any fees. So we're not taking our acquisition fee and going, right? Yeah. And I I think it's important to discern that, right? Because a lot of syndicators, and that's okay. It is what it is. It's all disclosed. Investors will think they're investing alongside when in reality, they've raised a lot of money in upfront fees and that's the money that's going in. Sure. Which that's fine. I have nothing against that. Typically, you're able to pull that off when you have more experience. When you have a massive track record, you can typically then go and say, look at our track record. I don't need to put in a half million dollars in this one. We can put in something. We'll put in a hundred grand, but here's our track record and blah, blah, blah. We're still signing on the loans. Our butt's still on the line, but we have a 10-year track record of a thousand units behind us clearly it's not our first rodeo and we're not going anywhere. So that's typically when you can pull that off. I've heard stories of people doing it early on and that's amazing. That's amazing that they can pull that off and that they can attract that many investors who will actually do that. But to them, that's great. But I'm glad we're talking about this. And as an LP, it's one of the things you should ask, especially to newer syndicators, how much money literally is leaving your bank account? to go into this, not investor capital, but your own hard-earned money. You mentioned signing on the loans. Are your loans recourse or non-recourse? Non-recourse. Okay. So help me understand, signing on the loan, if the deal goes south, you're allowed to walk away. They're not coming after anybody. Is that right? Well, minus bad boy clauses, as they call them, right? Yep. If you commit fraud, they're coming after you. But yeah, presuming you run a, a tight ship, in an honest ship, then no, if things go south, they're not personally going to come after you, but you have a massive reputation to uphold. If you plan on doing any other deals, I would highly recommend you don't allow a deal to go south, (laughs) right? Look, things happen. You can't control markets, but you can control how you operate, what you do, things you do, et cetera. So if the markets and the world's coming to an end, you can't control that. It is what it is. And investors, they may be mad, but they would understand. For example, be COVID. Can't plan for COVID. And if COVID happened to come and wipe you out because you can't plan for that, then that's not really your fault. You did the best you could. Investors sure are going to be mad, but they're also going to understand, dude, look, everybody got hammered. There's a different mentality versus if you're just operating poorly. Justin, on the deal that you have a variable rate on, what's the exit plan on that? We're refinancing that property right now. So thankfully, it's the only one we have that is in that position. Because I know a lot of other syndicators that are in a lot more than that. 
and they may not have an exit because they've either over leveraged them going in the door or maybe they're not hitting projections in terms of rents and stuff that they had projected. So they don't have that exit ability. But yeah, we went in, we went back to our investors and we said, hey guys, listen, we're going to raise additional equity to buy down the debt. Increase the equity, buy down the debt, and then allow us to refinance this property into fixed rate once we get to stabilization here in a few months. And that way we can get out of obviously the high interest rate loan we're in and into a fixed rate with a traditional, say, agency, would it be Fannie or Freddie, or even a commercial bank locally and get into that type of fixed rate at five to 6% sometime here in the next few months. And we are in mid-March of 2023. Is that what the rates are, five, 6%? And is that locked for five years or longer? Yeah, so you're seeing five, seven, 10-year loans right now. They're going to look for 1.25% DCR, which is debt coverage ratio. So in terms of your listeners, whatever your net operating income is, that needs to be 1.25 times more than your debt service. And that's what the bank's going to look at. And yeah, you'll get 70 to 80% leverage on it. And your interest rates right now are going to be somewhere in that middle upper fives to low sixes, depending on your leverage and quality of asset. Have you looked at pivoting into other asset classes, office, retail, industrial? Yes. So we're in mobile home parks. So we own six mobile home parks between South Dakota and Texas. We love that. And that's a whole different model, but it's a great model. And then I love self-storage. And typical return to investors, what are you offering these days? On multifamily, because things are squeezing with cap rates and everything else. So you're going to probably see middle teens in terms of an internal rate of return on your money. Six to 7% preferred return is kind of what we're putting out there at the moment. And yeah, you'll see middle teens on your projections at the moment just because of interest rates and where things are at. Got it. Justin, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Don't over leverage. Yeah. <laughs> Don't over leverage. Very important um, in 2023. I learned that through watching my dad. Like you say, you learn through, thankfully they weren't my mistakes, but yeah, don't over leverage and try and plan for the worst when you're underwriting. And this was even a lesson learned on our most recent ones that we then went into deals that we walked away from. We walked away from a $36 million deal in the middle of last year because of where the interest rates were going with the Fed and because we weren't going to give in and just try and fit a square peg in a round hole. And we ended up walking away from $800,000 in deposits. If you want to have the hair stand up on the back of your neck when you're sitting there just going, oh my gosh, we're about to walk away from this. But it's so either you, that yeah, or $12 million of investor money. And we weren't willing to take the risk and risk $12 million of investor money. So we went ahead and took the hit. And it was the greatest decision I have made yet to date because all those investors, because of how we handled it, and we were the ones that took the hit, we had another deal we just closed on, which was in San Diego for $22 million. Every single one of those investors that was on the Texas deal for $36 million, all of them came over to the $22 million deal because of how we handled that one. And we didn't let them take it in the shorts. We took it and walked and moved over to the new deal. And they said, wow, that takes some cojones. And I'm like, well, yeah, my bank account doesn't like it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, very, it's amazing. very scary. But it's amazing to hear the best thing you've ever done is lose eight hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, the nights I've stayed up thinking about that, it, but it was the right decision. You know, yeah. that, we had to do it. Well, we had to do it. That. Justin, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? 
Let's do it. You know, right. it's funny you mentioned that because I'm going to ask about a book, and yeah. I literally just got this in the mail two days ago. I started reading it. It's my first question. Okay, what's the <laughs> best ever book you recently read? And you're I just started up. reading it, and I love Joe. He's great, yeah. but I hadn't read this till now. It's a great book. It's the best ever apartment syndication book. Yeah, it yeah. is the Bible of multifamily investing. Good book. Justin, what is the best ever way you like to give back? It's funny. Do you know who Mr. Beast is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I learned through him through my kids, right? My kids are watching YouTube and watching this guy. He started years ago with a thousand followers and something, and he was just playing games on YouTube, right? And he wasn't getting a lot of following. And then what he did is he started then going around filming him giving away a bunch of free stuff, free money, free things, free that. And his channel exploded. Now he has second number highest following, like 100 million plus followers on YouTube now. It's unbelievable. So it triggered in my mind a freely you give, freely you receive mentality. And I took that and I always wanted to do a podcast, but it wasn't like to do a podcast and interview super successful people, which is great. I wanted to interview them, but really dive a few layers deep and get into why. How has giving and trying to create abundance for others then kind of stuck back and given you abundance in your life? Giving and helping others giving you back. And all these entrepreneurs love it. So we talk about really cool entrepreneur stuff and how they made success, but then how giving and helping others has created massive abundance for them. And so through that podcast is how we get back massively. I love it. And that leads into my next question. Please tell the best ever listeners how they can reach out to you and where they can find your podcast. Follow me on Instagram. That's probably the easiest way. That's Justin C. Brennan on Instagram. Everything's linked in there. If you want to follow the podcast or see what we're doing. Justin C. Brennan on Instagram would be the fastest and easiest. Justin, thank you for taking the time out of your day. You're sitting in your car. I know you're traveling <laughs> offsite, but thank you for pulling yourself away from the day and spending time with us and the best ever listeners, sharing the story about how you started out in development with your dad. You guys saw the 2008 crash, were heavily impacted by it, and how you rose and are cautiously moving forward in some of the hard lessons that you've learned. Thank you again for your time. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, Ash, and thanks for having me on. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.